How do multicultural experiences help UX designers in problem solving and creating social value? In this episode, our guest, Simone Rodriguez, a senior UX designer at Monster Lab in Dubai, answers this very question. Simone was born in India, raised in Oman, studied UX design at Symbosis University, and did her master's in interaction design at Monash University in Australia. Simone, welcome to the Docodemo Design Podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You're in Dubai right now, UAE, the city that we all see on TV as a city of glamour, beauty, and extravagance. I would like to ask you, what do you do in your pastime in this amazing city? I'm mostly at home, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm new to Dubai, so I'm, I'm exploring it slowly, slowly, when and as time permits. And I had my sister-in-laws in town, so we went um, to the desert and did some sand dune bashing and quad biking, which was a lot of fun. When did you arrive in, in Dubai? Uh, I came in October, but then um, I went straight to work as I landed because I'd been working remotely before that, uh, thanks to COVID. So since I've come, I've pretty much just been going to work and coming back, essentially. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to find my footing um, with like work permits here and finding accommodation and all just life stuff took precedence. And then my partner came and then now since he's come, we're slowly starting to like go out and see the city. Yeah, one by one. Yeah. I heard you have lived in like some different countries. Like where have you lived? Uh, so I grew up in Oman and then I did my studying there. Then I did my undergrad or bachelor's in Pune in mm-hmm. India. But before going to do my bachelor's, I did um, a semester abroad in Cape Town, South Africa, where Nando is kind of from. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It was, it was the most beautiful city I've seen till date. Um, I loved, loved Cape Town. Maybe because I went at such an influential age. I was like 13 or 14 at the time. So it was my first time setting out of the house and being on my own. And uh, I think that definitely contributed to the exhilaration of like, wow, this is such a beautiful city because it is so unreal in comparison to what I'm normally used to. And then um, I made some friends for life out there. Uh, Then... After I did my bachelor's in Pune, um, I then went and lived in Muscat for a while and worked remotely and did, um, well, then it was not remotely, but basically I did freelancing. Uh, And I also worked in interior design for a while, um, just fun stuff in the creative space because then nobody knew what UX was. You're talking like Mm. 2013. 2014 mm-hmm. like it was just unheard of and my parents didn't understand what the hell I got a degree in and I like do for a living um so that also meant that job opportunities were very very small uh so you took what you got um sometimes I was called a graphic designer sometimes I did interior designing because it was more like real world space um sometimes I was basically called computer fixer according to my mother um so it depends um i then uh, also worked uh, a little bit for a few uh, us clients <clears throat> then i 
did my master's in Melbourne. Uh, I lived there and worked there and did freelancing and all sorts of odd jobs for about six years. Uh, and then I got engaged and mm -hmm. I came to Bombay in India, thank you, to mm -hmm. plan my wedding and COVID hit and I got stuck mm -hmm. for two years. Mm -hmm. I couldn't come out, couldn't go anywhere. So that was not fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I finally escaped in October and came to Dubai. So yeah, mm -hmm. pretty much all the cities I have lived in and worked mm -hmm. in. Two years is, is quite a long time to be working um, remotely. Although I'll, I'll have to admit planning a, a wedding in India from what I've seen is not an easy task and takes time. So hopefully that kind of was like a little blessing in disguise that you actually got Maybe. more time at home, but yeah. Oh, I planned it and had to cancel it and postpone it about three times. And then my court marriage about eight times. So that was not fun. <laughs> so I'm curious how you study your like design career. If you like designing growing up or? Uh, no, uh, I mean, yes, to some extent, I was really into arts and crafts. My mom's really creative, so mm -hmm. I think I get it from her. I actually wanted to be a journalist. So I was one of those kids that kept changing their dream and ambition growing up. Like one day I want to be an air hostess. Then I realized, oh no, I'm five foot. I can't grow. So I can't be an air hostess. <laughs> so the next day I was like, ah, oh, okay, well, I love the sea. I want to be a marine biologist. Like I kept changing my um, choices. And then by the time I was like in grade 12, I was like, okay, that's it. I love writing. Um, I'm very like passionate about current affairs and the world. And I have a very strong um, opinions and like moral comp compass, I guess, to some extent. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'll be a journalist. And I was ready for that. So I applied for a course and, um, Due to like several circumstances that happened, the year I graduated was also when recession hit. And so a lot of places were not giving the scholarships that they were giving before. And so a lot of my options for college kind of dwindled down. And then my very strong Indian mother was like, that's it, you're going to India and we're going to apply for your colleges there instead of like globally and like, you know, gonna get you placed everywhere you can't sit at home for a year doing nothing like you know there's no such thing as a gap year in an Indian household like I'm sure <laughs> uh, uh, you can understand so I went uh, and I applied for journalism at my undergrad symbiosis and so in India you have this concept for NRI students which is what I am which is a non-resident Indian mm -hmm. short NRI okay? uh, you get like you apply for a different quota called the NRI quota for seats in college. And that also means that you nearly pay five times the regular fee rate. Okay. Because, oh, you grew up abroad. That means you got lots of money. So we put you in like the most expensive, um, like you better pay us because you stayed abroad kind of a situation for the same course and the same curriculum and everything. It's very, unfair but then a lot of I'll get a lot of splashback for saying that because a lot of resident Indians will complain that we earn more and blah 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 anyway um 
so I started to apply and I applied and in India, you've got this choice. You get to choose three um, courses that you would like to be like first choice, second choice and third choice or fields of study that you'd like to study at that university. And because you're willing to pay a premium, essentially, and your fees for your entire duration of your course will be five times that of like a normal person, three to five times, it depends university to university. Um, they will try and help you get placed because at the end of the day, colleges are also businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, you have to have the right scores and the right stuff and everything. Anyway, so um, my first choice, obviously, was journalism. Mm -hmm. And my second choice was design. But I didn't specify what course in design. I just said design because I was creative. Well, it turns out that they, there was somebody else with the same name as me. And that person got placed in journalism as an option. And I got given like um, on the waiting list, essentially. Wow. And that person had actually chosen design as their first choice and journalism as their second choice. And because of our names, she got the journalism one and not the design one. And I got the design one and not the journalism one. And um, so she ended up not taking the university at all. And how it happened was you had to pay up front. So we, like my parents were like, whatever, you're going to college, you're not sitting at home, doing yeah. whatever course. We're paying the fees up front, even though I was put into design and I was on waiting for journalism. So they were like, okay. And the admissions department was like, well, you know, she can always just like switch over or transfer to journalism if she gets the seat or whatever. But they didn't tell us that the minute you pay and you've accepted the other course, that mm -hmm. means you no longer are on the waiting list for the other one, which is what happened. So anyway, we created uproar at the admissions office and I was like, your system is flawed. How can you do this? Blah, blah, blah. My mom was like on point with the arguments. You know how mama tigers can be, right? In the end, they were like, okay, well, you know, we can't give you your entire money back because of like laws and financial, whatever. We can give you a sum of it back or you can study for a year and then in this course, and then we'll give you your seat for the other course anyway. And then you can just transfer. Journalism is a three-year course, design is a four-year course. So either way, you'll graduate with the same people that you entered into uni with, and you wouldn't have to pay for the first year of journalism. Well, I mean, that sounds like an actual defining moment in your life and your career, right? Because if you had gone to journalism yeah. it's it's so separate from design that i i don't see yeah. how you would have ever come so back into yeah that was yeah amazing. yeah it, it definitely was i actually adore the admission lady now like the entire time i was in uni i was just like i used to go and give her snacks during lunchtime like i absolutely adored her only because that simple four power first like mm -hmm. literally defined my life post that point and it really reinstates the whole like everything happens for a reason kind of mm -hmm. a concept mm -hmm. uh in a way yeah yeah. yeah what a journey <laughs> it, yeah it's been yeah. fun 
I fell in love with design as soon as I started the course. So there was no going to journalism post that. I was like, no, I'm happy. I don't want to go. And my logic was you can always write. Like you don't necessarily need a qualification to write, you know, and it doesn't necessarily need to be something that gets published or like presented out to the world. It's a passion and that can stay on as a passion irrespective. Yeah, and, and that's maybe something like, I'm really interested to dive deep into is that when your next part of your education career in design meant that you actually moved to Australia, to Monash. And yeah. one of the your passions actually came out through that experience, which is the, the uh, healthcare, you know, and taking care yeah. of others. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit more about um, some of the interesting uh, research work you're doing and interaction design you're doing related with uh, children. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so the crux of UX is always that you have to have a problem that you're trying to solve. And the solution can be anything, right? It can be digital, it can be real world, it can be augmented, it can be anything that solves that problem. UXs essentially are just problem solvers, right? which is really funny because we suck at it in our personal lives, but, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, when I was at Monash, my first like essential day, my professor was just like, okay, I want you to find a real world problem that we're currently facing or the world has been facing for a while and try to identify this problem and then state why it's a problem and why it's not been solved. Mm. So that led me into the healthcare sector and to like look at the fact that we've got all these amazing new emerging technologies that are coming about, sensors that can detect pretty much everything and anything about your body. Um, you've got flying little cameras, drones nowadays, and you've got so much that's out there and the tech world is moving so fast that there's a new phone that gets lost almost every other week mm -hmm. and if tech is progressing so much why is it that there hasn't been much contribution to the healthcare sector which could really use it um i found it weird that at that time um smart watches and wearables had just launched into the market yeah. And of course, they were flawed and they weren't 100% accurate, still aren't as, as much as I know. But um, they were launched, but they were not launched as a healthcare product. They were launched as a commercial product. And I found out, like, why? Healthcare could really use it. And it is about healthcare, reading your heartbeat, telling you your, like, body temperature, your steps. That's all related to health and care. Mm -hmm. So that led me into the healthcare sector and I looked at, okay, aside from something that is commercial in a way or appeals to people's individuality and expressing themselves, um, I wanted to look at things that really, really needed help. Uh, and that led me into the most helpless people or in our existence, which is babies. So I got into, um, I was very curious at the time that incubators um, for neonatal care or for premature babies hadn't really 
advanced much in nearly 15 years mm -hmm. like the devices hadn't changed the equipment hadn't changed much they had mostly had enhancements um the cost of the machines were like ridiculously expensive that there's a reason why there's a shortage of beds in hospitals for premature babies because the equipment costs a lot so it's a lot for the hospitals to invest in to even have them so that's hence why the limited beds um and i was just like this is bizarre technology has advanced so much like why can't we merge them and so i created an incubator for premature babies as one of my projects in my masters that simulated a womb from temperature to smell to movement to the sound of your mother's voice because mm -hmm. um, and aside from like reading everything uh, that the doctors need in order to treat the baby and all of the additional equipment like a lot of premature babies that are born their skin is underdeveloped sometimes or um, they've got internal organs that haven't had the opportunity to grow or become whole and so you simulate different kinds of um, environment like for the skin you have a special kind of light that you shine on them so that it doesn't get burnt and sensitive and it's kept moist and stuff like that so even things like that included into the incubator I actually built the prototype and which I loved it turns out I discovered that I actually like building things and working with my hands and working in a workshop however my workshop professor found it hilarious that most of the machines are not built for early shot people um <laughs> so often he would have like a little stool that he would keep with me around the workshop so that I could stand on them and then be able to like get the right like visual view to cut wood and metal and stuff but, like that but that's a like a, a really funny but like really relevant insight because with user experience we're not only designing for the perfect customer right the person who's yeah. a six foot um tall guy you know um everyone around the world varies in, in sizes and that's very similar to the work around children in healthcare the premature are a small percentage um, yeah. from my understanding but they're still just as important as everyone else um during uh i how do you think that thinking of being a not only a, a someone who designs experiences on a flat screen but someone who starts thinking about experiences in the world and how that experience is supported by really good understanding of a need you know as you said solving a problem how has that evolved for, for you like starting off um very simply from your your bachelor's and maybe even going towards now as a a, a designer in a in a company. In short, it means that I'm a very judgmental person. <laughs> uh, like that sounds harsh and and weird to myself, but it's more like you look at the world and then you automatically see the problems 
all the flaws and you start conceptualizing solutions for it pretty much immediately which is good and a bad thing good because it's great for like my problem solving skills it's great for me to like be able to solutionize better for when i do get paid on a project to solve something but also kind of bad on a personal level because whenever anything is done really nice i start to like automatically identify the problems mm -hmm. in a way so for personal mental health situation not the best um professionally has had no complaints so far so, i think that's a good thing so let's take um dubai for example that's uh a place you recently uh moved to right and yes. fully moved to you're not 100 percent um living in the uae as a as a resident um i would like to 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 talk about that um i'm going to let uh hinako mm -hmm. open up i know she's got a question around that he really wants to ask should i be scared <laughs> no <laughs> Um, like, what is the design community like in Dubai compared to Australia? Oh, uh, this is interesting. I'm still getting to know the design community here. So I only know what I'm exposed to at Monster Lab, mm -hmm. which recently I found out is very different for different people in different companies. Um, and I only know that because we're currently interviewing people um, for jobs at Monster in Dubai and Singapore and Prague. And the more we interview, the more I realized that actually we've got a pretty amazing setup at Monster Lab. And it's not something that we should take for granted. It's very different in different companies. Mm -hmm. uh, when I, what I understand within the design community, over here, companies come up to you and they've got a problem, but they already know what they want in terms of a solution. Mm -hmm. And they already know they want an app. They already know they want a website. They already know mm -hmm. they want a game or something like that. And you are essentially hired to just do what they want you to do essentially in terms of the platform or the product. Mm -hmm. And you get to define and help discover what the features and functionalities are going to be. And you still go through the rest of the UX process. Well, very rarely do you get a client where you can, they just go like, look, we just have a problem and we're hiring you to find out the solution, mm -hmm. which is what I actually experienced almost all the time when I was in Australia. They were very well aware in terms of the market, what the creative community is there for and what can, they can do and what a UX designer does mm -hmm. and how they go about it and just in general, what design agencies can do for them. Like, you don't have to have the solution. You can just have the problem and willing to come up with the solution together. And that was the mindset in Australia. Yeah, I've, from at least the few projects that I've been on and the other designers I've spoken to, it's like, they've already made up their mind they want an app. They already made up their mind that they want a website. And then it's a series of discovery workshops to then help you facilitate with them that, hey, maybe you don't need an app. Maybe you just need a website or maybe you don't need anything digital and it can just be a real world solution. 
but because they're kind of fixated on what they want, it's a very difficult conversation to have at the stage that you've already won the RFP, you've already signed a piece of work and an SOP and everything. And then you're kind of going like, hey, we agreed to build this app for you, but actually we don't think you should need it. And we would like to use your money in another form. And they're not happy about that to some extent. Mm-hmm. So it differs client to client, but that's been my experience so far. How do you, oh, so just to ask, um, I remember you mentioned earlier that when you started in um, your UX career or in design as a big field, there wasn't the, the role of a UX designer, right? It was something that yes. was growing up for NGC where all this tech and still is, but a lot yeah. of roles weren't, we didn't know we needed a UX designer. Now that you've also mentioned it, like you, it still sounds like you still have to explain what yes. your, your value is what is your advice for people who are maybe either they're, they're a designer in Australia or they're a designer who's planning on moving to Dubai? Those are two experiences. So I'll, I'll let you maybe decide on which one you'd like to answer. But how would you explain the value of like, I'm a user experience designer. This is like, how do you approach a client and explain that to them? Usually I do it by just letting them talk about what their problem is and then tell them, hey, listen, before you tell us what you want us to do for you, here's what we already think we can do for you based on what you've just said. But in order to do that, it means that you need to have a seat at the table at the first interaction with the client, which normally we don't get a chance to do. Normally the commercial team gets a chance to do that or um, whatever it's called in your company. So I realized that and then I started um, creating these educational initiative, essentially, because education or knowledge begins at home. And for us, that's within the company. So I'm currently on the move to educate my fellow colleagues, irrespective of what department they're in, about what design is irrespective of the various fields and the segments that we call under and how we can actually help you. So whenever you do need a client and the client goes like, hey, these are problems, you can be the one to say, hey, um, you know what? Based on those problems, I'd like you to meet a designer, but just off the top of my head, these are some of the solutions that we as a company can offer for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to fixate yourself, that it has to be a physical product. It can be anything in the realm of the tech world or non-tech world. And if you want to break in the market or be different, because that's essentially what every client is trying to do, right? They're trying to make a mark in the market that's different than their competitors. Well, there may not be a solution that you initially think it is going to be. We can help you discover what that solution is going to be. And that education starts from within the organization. So as well as educating clients. So one of the initiatives is to educate what we've got within our company. Um, And the other initiative is our clients that we've already done work for, that we've already finished the work that we've done for them or are currently ongoing work for them. We hold a workshop and we just educate them that, hey, look, this has been your experience with us so far. This is what we delivered for you. 
but moving forward, there are going to be loads of opportunities and times where you're going to need creative solutions for problems that you're going to come across. Here's where we can help. We can even help you hire creative people within your organization. Like we do a lot of things aside from what you would presume we can do for you. And that's where the education starts from. And we've done it with a client so far and the response was really, really good. Um, and now we're starting to do it within the organization as well. So small changes, small steps, but it's, it's heading in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, as for your other question about designers moving, it's been a real lesson for me to know that everything is different when you go to another country. Um, the culture, the people, and the laws and the labor laws. And that amalgamation definitely affects your work environment and what kind of work that you then get to do and how you collaborate with other designers. For example, in Melbourne, it was very common that I, like in a creative team, we would actually ideate at a bar somewhere, or you'd have like stubbies or like pints of alcohol in the fridge mm. in your work office. And then you just sit and like discuss problems and come up with solutions, a little tipsy. And the concept was that um, you come out with like the most bizarre ideas when you are intoxicated, which is true. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I then know. when you look at it with sober eyes, you go like, okay, this was absolutely ridiculous. But maybe it's got that fun element, like, you know, maybe it can then help in this thing. And it just gets the creative juices flowing. It just gets your work environment also is a very like mm. casual, chillaxed environment. You, uh, you find you get to know your colleagues in a better way. And that then helps you design better and come up with solutions better. And it just made a huge difference. And then I went to India where I was stuck and I then went into like a big corporate, which is publicist. And I was no longer a freelancer or consultant and I was a full-time employee. And then because of COVID and everything, the work culture was so different. The labor laws were so different. The inter-office dynamics were so mm. different. Like the Asian market, I, I mean, is very like, yeah, nine to five is a suggestion you work till the work is done and then you get the work done and that's it. And nobody really necessarily complains about the fact that you don't really have the opportunity for a work and personal life balance simply because everyone fears losing their job. So you pick and choose your battles about what you complain about because you've got population on your side. So mm. companies like, all right, you're complaining too much. You're not happy with this. You don't want to finish this. They view it differently and they see it as, okay, bye. We can get somebody else for half the rate as you and to do the same work or whatever. And we're more than happy with that. That's the mentality. So everyone's hustling just because they want to put food on the table. And that's very much the mentality or the crux of your mentality there. While as in Australia, I was like, hey, I get a job today. I don't get a job tomorrow. It's fine. My, you know, per hour rate is anyway, the basic of everything. I can survive on just working like 20 hours a week, still be able to pay rent, still be able to like choose the projects I want to work on, um, have some amount of savings left. And you know what, if I am unemployed, the government has my back. 
so I don't have to worry so much. I can choose what I want to work on and I can work on the kind of, and I can work the way I want to work and yes. the hours that I want to work, you know? It's, so it's, it's a very different mentality. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's also, as you said, like the environment and the people play a, a big role in that, you know, every place is different. Uh, every yeah. country is different. So what are the things that you're most passionate about, about UX design? Oh, this is a tough one. Yeah. Uh, currently, I, my passions keep changing. Okay. I'm a very, <laughs> <laughs> as you can tell, <laughs> uh, every couple of months, I have a new passion, I would say. Uh, currently, it is just educating people. It's been that way for a while. Mm. But I think it's easier to educate people now than it was, say, five years ago or 10 years ago simply because people are more aware of the importance of usability. People mm -hmm. are more aware about the importance of your users and what they want and need overseas and surpasses what you want and need necessarily. Right. And so it's easier to talk to people and get points across and even influence to some extent their mm -hmm. viewpoint. So I'm using that as an opportunity to now educate people a little bit more than what they just know as buzzwords, which is like, oh, UX, UX, UI, yeah. and like how mm -hmm. people mix them together and think they're the same thing yes. or one person has it all, yeah. um, which different. is so not the case. And honestly, creative departments and companies will not hire you if you say you're a UX UI designer, choose one guys. That's my biggest yes. advice to you yeah. because Jack of all trades, master of none. No one wants to hire that. Okay. That's, that's my biggest advice. advice. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Real talk. Real talk. Yeah. <laughs> and how, oh, it's the new field. It's not a new field. It's a section of experience design. Mm -hmm. It has branched out a little bit more as its own simply because companies now want to pay for just that particular segment of experience design. So you can be a UX designer and still do service design projects. Actually, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, it nestles under it. It's kind of like seeing someone is like, I'm a UX researcher or I'm a UX analyst. Um, I'm a service designer. They're all segments of UX and you can specialize in them or you can continue to do them as like, bits and pieces whenever you get the opportunity to what i kind of do we had i think a really good time yeah to thank everyone for listening yeah. to today's episode of the um, docker demo design podcast and uh hinako and i look forward to uh seeing everyone on the next episode i enjoyed it yeah thank you thanks guys <laughs>